Good morning. We uh, continue our series on the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the second letter of Paul's to the, uh, Paul to the Corinthians. And we'll be reading this morning on page 970. So even if you've never heard of Corinthians, <laughs> you don't know where it is in the Bible, you can look on page 970 and find that. It's in the New Testament, one of the many letters written by uh, the Apostle Paul. Is the great messenger of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. We'll be reading just uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning, just for time's sake. And uh, next week we'll be dealing with the rest of this chapter. <clears throat> also next week we're going to talk some about the overall situation of Paul, uh, the opposition that he faced in Corinth. Explore that a little more deeply as we talk about his concern for the Corinthian church expressed in the last chapter, uh, last part of chapter 12, and then finish up uh, chapter 13. Uh, By the way, we're planning to do the Psalms this summer, so if you want to be in prayer uh, with us for that. Um, yes, all 150 psalms in 13 sermons. <clears throat> I'm putting Ryan in charge of that. So, uh, Then, uh, the, the Lord willing, this fall we'll do Elijah and Elisha. So, fireworks going off in, in Kings. And then uh, we think we're going to do Hebrews. Uh, though we know this is the, we found out this is the study for the Bible study throughout the year, but so I still want to talk through that, but the elders are urging me to still do it because uh, such an important letter. So we'll see how all that comes out. All right, so let's begin then with chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Up to this point, Paul has chapter 11 as kind of, as he's put it, put on the fool's mask to join in the boasting of his opponents. But as we'll see later, his boasting is about his weakness uh, and not his strengths. So it's kind of a parody on boasting. So in verse 1 of chapter 12, I must go on boasting. Right after he's just talked about being let down by, in Damascus in a basket to escape. That's real sign of strength and you got it together and you're running the show and you're being humiliated, being let down in a basket outside of Damascus so that you won't get killed. So that's the kind of boasting. Okay. A little bit of the context. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. Except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, 
to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us that we may embrace your word in faith. That we may live it out in our lives. That we may practice it, Lord. That we may express fully the good news of the gospel embedded in our lives and showing itself and thereby showing the very glory of God. We ask you to do this for your glory, Lord. Amen. I talked some, uh, probably now a couple of months ago, about a series uh, that has in the title Thomas Covenant. And in this series, a man who has leprosy in this world is translated into a fantasy world in which he suddenly has the great power to defeat the dark lord of that world. It's the silver ring he still has that he refused to take off even though his wife left him because of his leprosy. But as a leper, he had trained himself with what's called VSE, the visual surveillance of extremities, so that he would never hurt his fingers or or get cut or burned Because he couldn't feel. That's the problem of leprosy. You can't feel anything in your hands or your feet, your extremities. And so they're very liable to get cut off or burned off. And you don't know it. That's the good thing about pain, right? And that's the danger of leprosy. Well, his great challenge in this world was to give up his self-dependence. Because to him... If he stopped depending on his own power and his own protection of himself, learned through several years, he would die. And he even thought it was maybe a suicide wish that was being fulfilled in this other world. But he had to completely give himself up in weakness to no longer protect himself, but to give himself up to this new power that he had. So only in his utter weakness would he then be strong in this world. And it was only toward the end of the third book that he finally, finally gave himself up and the full extent of his power was made known. And in a glorious description of the two powers, his light and the green light of the dark Lord soaring to the top And it says, but the white light won. You know, it was really a tremendous description of this warfare that occurred. Well, 
You can see how this parallels what we've just read. That Paul, in announcing and boasting in his weakness, is not thereby saying that this is the end of the story, but that he he is saying it is only in weakness that the power and the glory of God are made known in my life. So we're going to look at this weakness, especially as it's focused on this thorn, okay? A lot of questions surround this, and there are a lot of questions, a lot of things to be said about this passage, but we can only focus on a few things. First of all, the thorn, the big question, what was it? Some have suggested that, many have suggested, that it was persecution and opposition. The reason is in the Old Testament, this word is used in those contexts. Your enemies will be a thorn in your side, or I will remove the thorn in your side. Also, uh, being a thorn or a, a, a blow from Satan... The enemies that Paul is facing are described in terms of their relationship to Satan in the last chapter. And so it's easy to see that association. But it's difficult for me to believe that Paul would really pray that God would remove all persecution. Because Jesus had said, the servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And he announced to all of his converts, you can expect persecution. The book of Revelation teaches we will be persecuted all the way to the end until Christ comes. So it's it's difficult to think that Paul was praying for this to be completely removed from his life. So it leaves us with the more likely uh, scenario that there was some kind of physical problem. But here we're really in the dark as to what it is. A few conjectures, and I throw some of these out just that it may make you, whatever your situation feel like, well, it's something like this or that, or it could have been this or that. One is uh, suggested a speech impediment because they ridiculed how Paul talked. But the problem is this apparently occurred 14 years ago when he saw these revelations or heard these things in the uh, presence of God. And then shortly after that, He would have a speech impediment. Perhaps he had a stroke. Perhaps this caused him then to not be able to speak as he used to do. Or perhaps it was not a speech impediment, but maybe he was crippled by a stroke at that time. Or or injured in some way. And so that he walked with a terrible limp or gait. He was obviously crippled. And so he appeared very weak and people ridiculed him. Because of this, another suggestion is bad eyesight, Uh, because in Galatians, Paul says, some of you were willing to pluck out your eyes from me. Maybe it was because he had terrible eyesight or at the end of Galatians, he said, uh, now taking the pen in hand, he's not dictating anymore, says, see how I write in my own hand with large letters. So the thought is maybe he had bad eyesight, but it could have been migraine headaches. That took him out. Some of you know what that's like. Could have been kidney stones. It could have been any debilitating uh, physical thing that Paul suffered through. We don't know what it was. But it's painful. It continued. It was regular. It 
it constantly or at least occasionally uh, incapacitated Paul and humiliated Paul. And that's the way he was going to live the rest of his life in ministry. Now, who did it? Well, it says here in the passage that it is a thorn was given me in the flesh, which indicates it was given by God. But then it says a messenger of Satan to harass. And the word harass is the same word uh, used when it speaks of Christ being beaten. Okay. So he's, he's being riddled. He's being uh, beaten uh, by this thorn. But it says it's a messenger of Satan. And so in this case, he was involved like he was with Job. And you recall, Satan goes to God, requests permission to first attack Job's family and wealth, his possessions, which he did. And then when that didn't work, he came back to God and got permission to attack his very health, which Satan did. In uh, Luke, Jesus describes a uh, woman, as uh, a crippled woman, as having been bound by Satan for 18 years. And so in these cases... Uh, Satan is involved in human pain and suffering and sickness. And so it is here. Satan is acting with permission. It's a thorn given by God, but it's also a messenger from Satan. But this is our comfort that when Satan attacks us and he inflicts pain upon us, that it ultimately is allowed by God for his purposes and his purposes completely thwart the purposes of Satan. Everything is ultimately in God's hands. And you sense that even as Paul is talking. Even, even Paul says, yes, Satan is involved in this pain. And yet it is being used in the way God has chosen And so, though we as humanity have, in our abandonment abandonment of God, we have entrusted ourselves into the care of Satan. There's no other choice, okay? There's no other power to entrust ourselves to when we abandon God. And so, we suffered this terrible result of the whole history of agony and final death for every single human being. So is our new dictator. And the world you see is the world is, is as a result of being under the care and the ruler, uh, the one who's called the God of this world. In earlier in this letter, and of whom John says in First John five, the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. That means the whole world of mankind outside of God lies in the hand of the evil one. But by God's grace, we have been redeemed from that kingdom, out of the kingdom of Satan. And into the kingdom of Christ. But we still live in this broken world. 
We still live in this cursed world until Christ comes to redeem all things. So that now, as though before our suffering was a preview of what was to come in the final suffering of judgment, now our suffering is used by God constantly to do us good. And because of the resurrection of Christ, we too will finally be raised from the death and all suffering from death and all suffering will be removed from this earth. And so the effects of our abandoning God, the misery we plunged ourselves into will be gone forever. As joy to the world says, he makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So no doubt Satan intended this thorn to reduce Paul's influence, to ruin Paul and to blow apart his gospel mission, or at the very least to discourage him and greatly dull the effects of his ministry. But it didn't happen. (laughs) It didn't happen. So, what is it? Who did it? Why did God allow it? Third question. Paul answers this partly in verse 7. To keep me from being elated. Or perhaps a better translation. To keep me from being conceited. Isn't that amazing that that had to happen to Paul? The apostle Paul, that God allowed this thorn so that he would not be puffed up, so that he would not think that he's better or smarter or stronger than anyone else. We have to say, apart from that, it would have happened to Paul. That's what he's saying. He did this. He allowed this to keep me from being conceited. You remember the prayer, of course, in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here is God keeping Paul from the temptation and delivering him from evil in his action in Paul. That with this revelation also came the thorn. And so ironically... Though he was being subject to the physical abuse of the evil one, he was being delivered from the evil spiritual influence of the evil one. Because certainly it is God who would bring the thorn to take away pride, not the enemy. He is full of pride and would want to promote pride in Paul. So whatever Satan intended, this is how God used it. This thing that would incapacitate or humiliate him at any time. It's what God used to help keep Paul from feeling superior. To keep him from being arrogant. Even Paul at first thought that this is not a good thing. (laughs) Right? That's why he prayed. And he prayed repeatedly. Three times may mean I just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. At least it means there were three set times where he put, he put it before God. Perhaps three instances of its terrible effects in his life. And he just pleaded with God the first time. He pleaded the second time. He pleaded the third time. Please take this. You must take this away. This is going to ruin everything. 
Plus, of course, the horrible pain, perhaps, that was involved in it. We don't know. But the Lord responded to him, finally. And it's a word that, you might say, echoes to the time of his very writing. It was a final word. And it was something that changed Paul's approach, even to this weakness. And it was the word, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So now instead of praying that it be removed, Paul says, I boast in this weakness. Because in this weakness now, I know the power of Christ or the power of Christ is made known. In fact, in verse 10, this word content for the sake of Christ, I'm content means to delight in or take pleasure in. And so Paul takes delight, not in the weakness itself, but he takes delight in the fact that Christ is glorified in this weakness. Christ's power is made known in this weakness. His power is made obvious. When Paul is weak and God continues to accomplish his purposes in a weak man. In the last chapter and this chapter, you can see Paul's humility as we begin before we read that uh, he is playing the fool and he's entering into the boasting, but he's only boasting of his weakness. And he's boasting of the continued weakness of being persecuted, lowered in a basket, and now this thorn. And even when his opponents apparently bragged about their visions and all the things they had seen, you know how we've seen some of that in our day, somebody that's been caught up into heaven, they describe all the stuff they've seen. We're here, Paul is caught up into heaven. He doesn't really see anything. It's, it's, it's much like Paul uh, when God spoke to Moses and said, when you were on the mountain, you didn't see any form. You just heard a voice. And that's what Paul reports. This is, I heard things, but I can't even report them. I'm forbidden to, and there are no human words that could begin to clothe these magnificent things. And so Paul is saying, look, even what I said it has no effect on my ministry. And that's not what I'm holding forth as to look what I know. Look what I can tell you. Look what I've brought down from the very presence of God. You know, he's just saying, I can't even talk about that. But here's what, I'll, here's what I can tell you. Here's what he said. My power is made perfect in weakness. <laughs> that's my message from God. No glory in that for Paul. No amazing things that he could see and report. And boy, you're so important that you, you saw all these things. This is what he, he, he reveals. <clears throat> this is his word from heaven, right? It's a crippling thorn. That's his calling card. That's his letter of recommendation. How about boasting in that? I have this thorn. <laughs> That's what I boast in. You see... All of his boasting is in the great power and glory of God. And it's interesting, this phrase, the power, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is literally the word to raise a tent. Okay? So 
he's saying that the power of Christ pitches his tent over me. It brings to mind the, the glory of God from the Old Testament in the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah is probably related to this word tent, the tent glory. And it speaks not only of the power, but the protection of Christ. And the word is emphatic, this position, so that none other than the power of Christ may tent itself over me. That's where the weakness brings me. You see, he becomes then the place of God's glory, his own weakness, but God's great power and glory. God's grace manifested in his life. It's so much like what he had said earlier in chapter 4, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Treasures in jars of clay. That's what we are. And Paul here in his boasting, brings us to this point that I'm content, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Well, let's say a few words then about this strength in weakness Paul, uh, Jesus is basically saying there in verse 9, you need nothing more than my grace. You need nothing more than my grace. In fact, Christ's power reaches its height in Paul's weakness. And it's not just I'm weak, then in succession I'm strong. It means... In the midst of my weakness, as I'm consciously acknowledging my weakness, then, then his strength is manifested. While weak, Christ's strength shows itself. And so Christ's power reaches its fullness in our weakness. You could say that weakness is the prerequisite, the requirement for God's power. And it's the constant attendant and situation for God's power. So that his strength operates at the same time of weakness. And brothers and sisters, constantly acknowledge weakness is the only hope for the display of God's power. The only hope for it. And so Paul's personal motto. In fact, uh, one commentator says this is the summit of the whole of the letter. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. As I'm weak, in the midst of weakness, that is when I have fellowship with the strength of Christ. I have kononia, communion with the fellowship of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, your weakness is your opportunity to know the power of Christ. Your weakness is, is the opportunity, the occasion for the manifestation of the power of Christ in your life. 
And it's the only time it will manifest itself. And your conscious acknowledgement and confession of your own helplessness and weakness. And that's why what we sang is so important. This is not just your beginning statement. You know, you, you come to Christ this way and then you leave this later. That foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I day. Naked to come to thee for grace. Helpless look to thee. Uh, naked look to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. You see, we, we're, we're coming absolutely destitute. And it's the maintenance of that sense of destitution by which his salvation is constantly known and manifested in our lives. That's why... Uh, I can't talk about how much I love this hymn, Jesus I Come. What a beautiful, constant expression. Not as a one-time thing, but the constant motion of our lives. Lord, out of my bondage and my sorrow and my night, I come into your freedom, your gladness, your light. Out of my sickness into your health. Out of my wanting into your wealth. You see, this is a helpless dependence upon him. This, this is a good hymn to memorize. Right? <laughs> to read day after day. To sing. To make it a vital part of your life. Not just this hymn, but this idea that is, it, it expresses from Scripture. And this has always been the case. What does it say in Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen? You know it well. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I dwell in an exalted place. You know where else I dwell? One place. You know, for effect is how he's putting it. There's one other place you can find me. One other place you can find the manifestation of my glory and my presence. It's with the contrite and lowly. You can see it with Gideon, remember? Right? Starts off, 32,000 men show up. Probably not enough to start with, but at least it's 32,000. And suddenly he looks around and it's been reduced to 10. Oh, this is great, God. This is really, really good. Yeah. But God's not even begun, right? He drops it to 300. That's like 1%, right? You math people. 1% of the original number. And God chooses to show his power then. There's a lesson for us. What if God brings you so low, he hurts you so deeply, he knocks your feet out from under you so violently due to some physical thing or emotional thing, a relational thing, and you just feel utterly devastated? There you go. There's the time. There's the opportunity for the manifestation of his power. One has written this, the goal of Christ's power is not to increase itself. He can't, right? It's, it's as big as it's going to get. The goal of his power is to lower itself to be present and dwell within human weakness and need. And you see, Christ is the very picture of this. He was crucified. He was dead. 
And in that situation, the power of God manifested itself that he's raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God and rules all things under God. A little bit of power manifested in weakness. And so he's described in the next chapter in verse 4. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Your Savior has the marks of his weakness forever. You understand that? We're never going to get past this notion that we are the helpless ones dependent upon him. And the more we understand it, we'll understand it so perfectly and beautifully in that day. We'll praise him forever. He's ever the lamb slain. He's ever the crucified one. He's ever the the living manifestation of power in weakness. And through his reign, there will be a multitude that no man can number who will stand before the throne. There's the final, one of the aspects of his power, drawing his people to himself. And so, brothers and sisters... That is why Paul, uh, why, why Peter can say, why James can say, and they're quoting the Old Testament. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we rely on ourselves, we don't seek his power. We don't depend on his power, and we will not have his power. His power is not present among those who are self-sufficient and self-promoting. God will leave them to their own resources. Good luck with that. And most of us have experienced many, many times what that is. And we'll, we'll do many times in the future. When leaders in the church... In America, abandon the word and say things like, I never mention sin. When they don't preach the cross of Christ, they don't preach Christ suffering the punishment which we deserved and being raised to new life through God's power, then you can be sure God's power is not present because they have abandoned helpless dependent upon a glorious Savior. Paul's opponents did not boast in their weakness because God's glory was not their aim. You see, this was Paul's aim, the glory of God. And so he, he boasted, he treasured his weakness after a while, realizing this is how God is made known. All the more in my weakness is he made known. False leaders Lead us away from the suffering Christ. Away from all glory being given to Christ. And so all accomplishment that is independent of God and his grace is empty accomplishment. It ultimately stands against God and not for him. And the encouraging thing about this passage is that the thorn is ultimately left vague on purpose. So that we can apply his circumstance to whatever weakness we encounter, right? Whatever knocks us off our feet, whatever turns our world upside down or blows our life up, 
Whether it's death or divorce or disease or loss of employment or loss of friendship, abuse of any kind, failure of any kind, we begin to see life in a different way to say, now is the occasion for the power of God. Now is the occasion for God to form me and make me more into Christ so that Christ's love might show more than ever in my life during this difficult time. And that's one of the most beautiful, astonishing things in the history of the church. And you've heard this many times, but they say the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church because countless people watched the way they died. Watch the way they died. And they were brought to conversion through that. So that the complete giving up of ourselves, the complete weakness even of death itself, is a manifestation of the power of God drawing other people to himself. And this aspect of Independence has a lot of permutations. Part of dependence and acknowledgement, acknowledging my weakness, is to believe that as I give myself to his will, my needs and desires will be met. I'll be satisfied in him. This is one of the most important aspects of admitting our weakness, that I cannot fulfill my life. I cannot give myself the ultimate thrills of humanity. I can only know these things in relationship to this God. He alone can give me life. Some of you probably are still holding on to your life. Independent of God. Being strong in yourself. Claiming I will make myself happy without you, God. That's an aspect of not Boasting in our weakness. But how wonderful to say, in my weakness, Lord, I give myself up to you to satisfy me. In my weakness, I abandon my sin. Every, every aspect of my holding on to sin involves my pride and my independence from God. And my claim that I will carve my life out in a better way than God can. And other things. Anger is a great example of self-dependence. It's rooted in my need to control. My need to be God. What I want to happen didn't happen. What I didn't want to happen happened. And it brings anger and depression and cynicism and many times isolation and many kinds of idolatries. But you see, anger is rooted in self-dependence. Not admitting, oh Lord, I can control nothing in my life. I give myself up to you in weakness that you might have my life. We hold on to fear. We allow insecurity. And this is ironic because we're... Relying on our own strength, our own governing of fear and the way we navigate our life to to guard our life. That's self-protection, right? It's not, Lord, admitting my weakness, I put myself in your hands to do your will, even when sometimes I'm scared to death. I will not hold on to my life 
and try to guard myself and prop myself up by my own strength. Only God can give us this. Only God can cause this to be manifested in the way we pray, in the way we seek his word. Those things itself, worship itself is an expression of our helplessness. It's an expression of our brokenness, our coming to him to cry out for what we don't have in ourselves. And I pray that if you haven't yet given yourself to Christ, that that's the ultimate the ultimate abandonment of God. There's only one choice to make in abandoning yourself. Abandoning God is to give yourself over to evil. To give yourself over to that which is not God. But the great news, the good news is in all of your sin, in all of your helplessness, in all of your brokenness. God invites you to come. And to give yourself up to him and entrust him with everything that he might rescue you, that he might save you. Let us pray. Lord, we, we love to be God. We love to try to run our own lives the way we want. And all of that's not wrong. But Lord, ultimately to entrust ourselves into your care and to know that these devastating things that happen to us are indeed the very occasions of your power and that in a broad sense our daily weakness our daily helplessness our daily inability to follow you and obey you and love you and have the right desires in our hearts Lord, this, these daily experiences and acknowledgments of our weakness give us a daily experience of your power in our lives, of your constant rescue and transformation in our lives. Oh, Lord, may we live those kinds of lives, the kind of lives expressed in Jesus I Come and Rock of Ages, These would be the full and rich expressions of the way we live our lives. Ever entrusting our helpless selves to this gracious Jesus Christ. Who will constantly do us good. And whose great power will be constantly manifested in our lives. Oh Lord, change us. Change us ever as we humble ourselves before you. In Jesus name, amen.